Father, uh, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to, to talk about or to hear from your word things that, that are difficult to hear, Lord, and um, that are, are truly sensitive, Lord, but that your word does speak on. And so, you know, we don't want to shy away from it, but we do want to hear what you have to say to us. And we thank you for the wisdom that is found in your word that helps us know how to navigate uh, this culture that we find ourselves in, uh, this culture that is so eager to come out from under your authority and seeks to pull us believers out from under your authority as well. Um, so we need strength from your word. We need wisdom. We need grace, Lord, to not only uh, stand against temptation ourselves, but the grace to show grace to others who, who are yet in need of a Savior. Uh, they, they have not yet come to know Jesus Christ and the salvation and forgiveness of sins that can be found in him. And Lord, we need love. We need your love for the lost uh, that Christ so clearly displayed in his ministry and that he calls us to display. Lord, keep us from being man-pleasers, but also keep us from being Pharisees. Lord, make us more like our Savior in how we seek the lost, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, we're continuing to work through some more of the questions that had been submitted to us by you all. Um, and a few of you actually asked about this particular subject that I'm addressing this morning. And I, if I remember correctly, this was the only question that, that multiple people were asking about. And these, these common questions that, that you asked had to do with the LGBT movement that we've been observing in this country for the past couple decades and that has really, just over the, the past few years, accelerated. And having recently come off of what has been unfortunately called Pride Month, the month of June, I think that this is a subject that is on a lot of our minds. And really, uh, our culture doesn't allow you to get it off of your mind, do they? It's plastered all over our TVs. It's finding its way more and more boldly into our children's storybooks and into Disney movies. It's in your face in the de department stores like Target. Um, it's being taught in our schools, and you see it proudly flapping in the wind off of so many front porches of houses and businesses. And many of us are wondering how a Christian is supposed to respond to all those around us who seem to be swept up in this ideology, this really false religion. So I want us to go to the Bible this morning to gain a biblical perspective, first of all, on how we got here in the first place. How did we slide all the way to this point as a culture here in America? Um, how are we supposed to respond? That's the other question. Not only how did we get here, but now that we're here, how do we as Christians respond to those around us, whether it's our family or our friends or our coworkers or our neighbors, as they begin to press us on this issue? Because those adopting this ideology aren't content with you being silent. They want you to vocally affirm where they are. And they are pressing us to not be silent, to declare ourselves which side are we on. And I'm going to focus this morning on the T 
of LGBT. That is the transgender category of that acronym because that's the one that really is making it nearly impossible to avoid as it warps the very perception of reality that those around us are adopting. But the lessons we learn here are going to apply to all those other initials as well. So first, how did we get here? How did we get here? Well, I want us to look at God's perfect design that we find in creation and then compare that with man's perverted redesign. So we're going to look at God's perfect design and we're going to look at man's perverted redesign. And for that, let's go back to Genesis 1. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. And I'm, I'm really amazed at how often we end up here in our Bibles. The Bible I have at home that I do my devotions out of and that I study with, Genesis 1 through 3, the pages are tinged yellow because of how often my grubby hands flip to those pages. Here in, in these first three chapters, we observe the doctrine of God's creation and man's fall into sin. And these doctrines are truly fundamental to our lives as believers. So much is built upon the truths that are revealed in these early pages of Scripture. And when we stray from these truths, in reality, we are straying from reality because this is reality. This is how God created the world to be. And when we put our hands over our eyes and say, no, I don't believe that, I believe something else from that, we are losing our grip on reality and things go south really fast. So let's look at chapter 1, and I want to particularly hone in on verses 26 to 27. Those verses say, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see in these two verses that God made mankind, right? That's obvious. Mankind did not make himself. God made him. And when it comes to makers and the things made, what do we know about the relationship between the maker and the thing that is made? Who owns who? The maker owns the things that are made, right? We see that in our call to worship. Psalm 24 speaks of all of the earth being a possession of God himself. And who has the authority over who? The maker has the authority over the thing that is made. Who gets to determine the purpose of who? The maker gets to determine the purpose of the thing that is made, right? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, verses 19 to 21. He says this, You will say to me then, Why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? And Paul answers this hypothetical person. He says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? In verse 26 of chapter 1 here, we discover that 
God not only made mankind, but he made mankind in what? His image. So that that right there tells us an essential part of God's purpose in making us. His purpose in making mankind was to what? Image him, right? Represent him to the rest of creation. Show everyone who he is. That is what we as mankind are supposed to be doing, imaging God. And as the creature, as the thing that is made, we don't have the right to decide to repurpose ourselves, right? If I make a gingerbread cookie, that cookie is mine. I have authority. I made it for a purpose, and that purpose is to go into my stomach. That gingerbread man can't get up and say, I'm going to repurpose myself. I'm going to do something else. No, I made it. I call the shots on what will be done with it. And it's the same with God. Obviously, we are infinitely more complex and valuable than a gingerbread man. But we still are the creature. We have to do what God designed us to do. We don't get to decide how to image God any way we like. We have to do it the way he calls us to do it. And he has a very specific design in mind for how mankind is to image God to the rest of creation. And in verse 27 of this chapter, we discover a very important aspect of that design, how God intends for mankind to image him. Look at verse 27 again. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We see here that God decided that his image would be best expressed if mankind was made up of of who? Male and female, right? Two biological sexes, male and female, two genders, right? A biological sex determines gender, or at least that is what we as humanity agreed upon for the first 6,000 years of our existence, right? Two biological sexes means how many genders? Two genders, right? But according to the LGBTQIA plus community, how accurate is that number? According to them. Incomplete, wildly incomplete, right? And they have successfully convinced a large portion of this country that we live in that the idea that there are two genders is way off. According to the website sexualdiversity.org, there are, quote, 107 gender identities currently listed for 2023, unquote. And that, that word currently is italicized, meaning that number is subject to change. In 2024, that number could be more. That same website says this, quote, gender identity can correlate with a person's assigned sex or can differ from it. They're saying what the gender you identify with, it can either be the same as your biological sex or not be the same. It could be different, they say. They go on to say this. In most individuals, the biological determinants of sex, that is basically your biology, right? That is, for most people, congruent and consistent with the individual's gender identity. They're saying that for most people, your sex is consistent with your, with your gender, all right? 
But they go on to say, while a person may express behaviors, attitudes, and appearances consistent with a particular gender role, such expression may not necessarily reflect their, their gender identity. They're saying, it may not be the case for you that your gender is the same as your biological sex. That's the end of that quote. It's interesting that the author of that statement seems to acknowledge that there is only two biological sexes, right? And that there are biological factors that determine which of those two you are. But the author argues that biological sex does not determine one's gender identity. According to the transgender ideology, biological sex and gender are two things that are largely independent from one another. Biological sex does not determine gender according to this ideology. Instead, you can ask the question, well, what determines gender then? What determines what gender you identify yourself as then? Well, that, that website says this, quote, gender identity is what someone feels is their gender, unquote. So it's based on feeling, not on biology, but how you feel, according to this ideology. Merriam-Webster.com defines the word transgender as this, quote, of relating to or being a person whose gender identity differs from the sex the person had or was identified as having at birth, unquote. If you were to go on Planned Parenthood's website, they have an article there entitled, All About Sex, Gender, and Gender Identity. And in that article, they make a distinction between a person's biological sex and a person's gender identity. And they describe gender as being this fluid thing that can change depending on how you feel. And the reason why they can make that claim is because they no longer think that gender is determined by your biology. If it's determined by feeling, that's a fluid thing. I might feel like a man today, but if I wake up tomorrow, I might feel like a woman, and my, my gender has changed because it's based on my feelings. So you see, in the, in the transgender ideology, it seeks to drive a wedge between your biological sex and your gender. But let's look at the book of Genesis again to see if that is true. Is that really reality? Is that really how things are? What did Genesis 1.27 say again? God created mankind as what? In his image. And how did he express that image? He created mankind as, verse 27, male and female, right? Male and female. That's a statement about biological sex. He created mankind male, that's one, female, and female, that's two, two biological sexes. Now let's go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we get kind of a zoomed-in view of God's creation of mankind. We see it uh, fleshed out more for us. We're given more detail at how God created mankind. When God created a male human being, right, a, a, a human being who is biologically male, what is that male called according to verse 8 of chapter 2? The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed who? The man, 
right? The man whom he had formed. According to verse 8, this biological male is what kind of gender? Man, right? A man. And this male, who is also a man, is referred to throughout chapter 2 with what kind of pronouns? Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Male pronouns indicate what gender? Male, right? In verse 18, we see that God is not satisfied with only having a male man to image him, right? What does verse 18 say? Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. In order for mankind to completely fulfill God's design for him, God needs to add what to this male man, according to verse 18? What does God need to add to this, this man? A, a compliment, right? A helper suitable or corresponding to him. And we see that happen in verses 21 to 22. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So here we see the creation of the female, right? And what is this female human being, this, this biological female that God made out of Adam's rib? What is she called in verse 22? Woman, right? She is called a woman. And with what kind of pronouns is this female human being referred to? Verse 22, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. He brought her. So this, is, this biological female is what gender? Female, a woman, right? So you have God here in, in Genesis 1 and 2 creating a biological male who is a man, and you have him creating a biological female who is a woman. In both cases, their gender matches their biological sex, right? Now you may say, okay, but what does that prove? Sure, you've proved that Adam's biological sex and gender are the same, and you've proved the same thing about Eve, but who's to say that Adam and Eve didn't have a child who was biologically male, but whose gender was female, or one of the other supposedly 107 genders? Can you prove that such a thing could never happen for one of their offspring? Can you prove that, that God wasn't open to that happening, that he didn't design maybe even for that to happen. Yes, I can prove that. Remember from chapter 1, verse 27, that God's image was to be expressed through a humanity that is male and female, right? And when God made a biological male who had a male gender, what was wrong? According to chapter 2, verse 18, what was wrong with that? Why didn't he just stop there? It wasn't good, right? Implying what? It implied that this, this individual, biological male who was a man, could not accurately image God. He could not, 
on his own, do what God called him to do, to fill the earth, to rule over creation, right? He needed a helper to do all that God was intending for him to do, to image God, to fill the earth, to rule over creation. He needed a helper, and not just any helper, a helper who was suitable to him. That's what it says in verse 18. I will make him a helper suitable for him, or corresponding to him, which implies that this helper is not going to be the exact same, right? This helper is going to be different. And not only is this helper going to be different, but different in such a way that this helper will complete what is lacking in the other. So you've got two puzzle pieces that need to fit together, right? In a box of a thousand-piece puzzle, you take one piece, and how many of those other pieces are going to fit with that one piece? just on that one side. Only one other piece, right? You can't make any other different helper to make that go together. It's very specific. This complement had to be suitable. God couldn't just plop down another man alongside Adam. That complement that God made for Adam was a biological female, right? And not just a biological female, but a biological female who had what gender? female gender, right? A woman. So what do we learn from this? We learn from this that in order for humanity to properly image God, you need biological males who are men being complemented by biological females who are women. Anything else will fail to image God correctly, right? Anything else would be a perversion, a twisting of the image of God into something other than God really is. God created humanity in such a way that he made it impossible to separate biological sex from gender. Because if you separate those two, you begin monkeying with the image of God. God inseparably joined those two things together, sex and gender. You cannot separate them. This this mixing and matching that we see today of one of the two biological sexes with any one of the other supposedly hundred different genders, that was not, and it is not, how the maker designed humanity to be. God has not left us the possibility of separating sex from gender. And to say that you can is to have completely lost your grip on reality. It's a fantasy world to think that you can because that's not reality. God has left no room in creation for that to even possibly happen. It is impossible for you to be a gender that is different from your biological sex. Now, I do want to pause and acknowledge the fact that because we live in a fallen world, we do have the very rare situations in which certain people are born who have genetic abnormalities, right, in their sex chromosomes, and they have abnormalities in their ability to produce or process certain hormones. And those abnormalities can make it legitimately difficult to determine what what biological sex they are, which makes it difficult to determine what gender they are, right? But that in and of itself proves what we've just seen in Genesis. If gender and biological sex are not in inseparable, 
then why would having a difficulty of determining their biological sex mean it's difficult to determine their gender? If gender is just based on how you feel, there's no difficulty there. Just let them tell you how you feel and that's the gender they are. But because they're inseparably connected, for those individuals, because of those abnormalities, it can be hard to, to see where that is. But that is the result of living in a fallen world, right? It doesn't disprove what we've seen here in these first couple chapters of Genesis. And those individuals, they are still in the image of God. And they are still to be loved and accepted and supported as we would any other person who was born with a disability or a disorder. But when you look at the transgender movement, all of those in the transgender community, as every single one of those people dealing with this chromosomal hormonal abnormality? No, no, they're not, right? It's a very, very small, rare occurrence. And all of those in that movement, most of them are not dealing with that biological problem, right? Their situation is one of rebellion against God, right? For them, for most of them, the vast majority of them, there's no question what their biological sex is, which biblically speaking means there's no question as to what their gender is, and it's not subject to their feelings, okay? So that's, that's God's perfect design versus man's perverted redesign. But let's Let's try to answer this question, how did we get there? Why does man do that? Why does man feel the need to redesign God's perfect design? Because so many in this country are attempting to live in that fantasy world of having your gender be different from your biological sex. Why is that? What is it about reality, right? What is it about this world that God made that we live in what is it about reality that drives so many in this country to want to either pretend to be a different gender than what they are or to affirm those who pretend to be a different gender than what they are? What is it about reality that drives men to do such things? Well, that's where Genesis 3 comes in, right? According to Genesis 1 and 2, our reality is that we were created by God in his image and we are thereby, or therefore, ruled by him and accountable to him, right? Remember, he's the maker, we are the things made, right? We are accountable to him for whether or not we live in accordance with his design and his purpose for our lives. Well, in Genesis 3, this maker, this creator, this authoritative God commanded Adam and Eve to not do what? Do you remember Genesis 3? To not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But then what happened? Satan came to Eve through the serpent and he tempted her by promising her this. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. What does, he, what does he promise Eve? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That could be translated and you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Do you hear that lie? You will be like God. Which means they don't have to any longer be under the authority of who? The God who made them, right? They can be their own God. They can make their own rules. They can do what they want to do. 
And Adam and Eve, we know, ate from the tree, and by doing that, they sought to set God aside as their authority and become their own authorities. And ever since that day, mankind has been doing the exact same thing. Turn over to Psalm 2, where we see this. Psalm 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 3. The psalmist says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Messiah, Son of God, Jesus, saying, verse 3, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What are fetters and cords? They're things that you're bound by, right? They feel that they are bound by God and they want to throw those bonds off, right? They want to throw off the authority of the Lord and his anointed. And that, that's just the world we live in, right? Was this only true when mankind crucified Jesus? No. Is it only going to be true on the last day when the Lord rides in on a white horse and conquers Antichrist and all his armies? No, it's happening every day in between, right? Man is constantly seeking to throw off the fetters that they feel they are constrained by. And one thing that we have to understand is that there is an observable progression that takes place from generation to generation in how bold man becomes in attempting to throw off those constraints. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go over to Romans. In Romans chapter 1, we see this, this devolvement of humanity. You know, man is not getting better and better. Man is getting worse and worse. As you're turning to Romans, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, that man will go from bad to worse, right? And we see that in Romans. And I want to take the time to read from Romans 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, and then we'll briefly just make some observations. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever." Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. You see, there's, 
There's a degradation that happens in the wicked passions of men. It just gets worse and worse. It degrades. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, does it not strike you how much of this passage echoes Genesis 1 through 3? You see in uh, verses 18 through 23, man elevates animals and himself above the creator, just like Adam and Eve elevated the word of the satanic serpent above God's word. And they elevated their own desires over that of their creator. Then in verses 26 and 27, man, he takes his sexuality, right? A sexuality that was designed by God in Genesis 1 and 2 to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. And that was intended by God to result in what? The filling of the earth, right? But man takes that. And in verses 26 to 27, he twists it so that he can enjoy it outside of marriage. And so that he can enjoy it in ways that completely prevents the earth from being filled, right? You don't get babies from men from men or women from women. Then, verse 28, man totally loses his mind. He's given over to a depraved mind, verse 28. And Paul, in this verse, he's making a play on words. The word for depraved is the Greek word adakimas. And in this context, it means something like unfit or worthless. And at the beginning of this verse, Paul said that just as they did not see fit, and that's the verb Dakimazo. Do you hear the, 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 the similarity in the words? Adakimas, unfit. Dakimazo, to think or see fit. So you see what's happening there. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to what kind of mind? An unfit mind, right? And then he goes on to the end of the chapter to describe what an unfit mind leads to. And as you read verses 29 to 32, was that not a fitting description of our culture, right? And what could be more evidence of an unfit mind than to observe your biological sex and shake your head and say, no, I'm not buying it. I think I'm something else. I think I'm one of the other 107 genders. That's not a, a fit mind, right? Now, toward the beginning of this passage, verse 18, what is the truth 
that unrighteous men are suppressing in all this. Verse 19. What they are suppressing is that which is known about God. That which God has made evident within them. For God made it evident to them. And what about God? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The truth that is being suppressed is the truth that mankind has a creator, a truth that is observed in creation, right? And the, the truth that is being suppressed is that man is accountable to that creator. And mankind is so desperate to suppress that truth and to stifle that truth that they will attempt to cast off the very constraints that God put in place in the creation itself. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw two of those constraints, right? First, we saw the constraint of there being only two biological sexes, with those two biological sexes being inseparably bound to only two genders. And second, we saw the constraint of a biological man and a biological woman only coming together in the bonds of marriage, as God defines it. Those are the the constraints that God put in place right at the beginning of creation. And it's those very things, together with the rest of creation, that testifies to man that they are under the authority of, of who? Their creator. And mankind, seeking to throw off the fetters with which God has bound him, is done with that. Mankind, as we see today, is trying to rewrite his own reality. And he will go so far as to visit a surgeon and try to remake himself into something other than what his creator intended. He will even go go so far as to try and get everybody else to go along with his fantasy so that he never has to think about the fact that there's a creator he will one day have to give an account to. So that is how we got here. Do you understand? That is how we got here. Now, what do we do about it as believers? What do we do about the fact that this is the world we live in? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. It's the same answer to every other problem we ever encounter. What is the answer? What do you think? Yep, love them. Yep. What do we seek to, who do we seek to introduce them to? right, the Lord Jesus. And how do they come to know the Lord Jesus? What what message do we have to bring? The gospel, right? The gospel. So in answering this this second question, what do we do about it? I first, I want to answer it by saying what not to do about it, all right? There are two wrong approaches that we tend to take. And if you are a consumer of of the media, you know, media, they're going to be on one side of the political aisle or the other, right? And they're not too concerned about doing it the way this book says to do it, right? They're going to be giving you one approach or the other approach, and both of those approaches are wrong, okay? So when you are turning on the radio or watching the TV, you, you have got to be discerning, You have to understand that the messages you're getting from there is not going to line up with what you find in this book. 
And if you find yourself being conformed to the images and the, the, the visions and the messages that you are receiving through that media, it's time to take a break from that and get back into the Word of God so that your mind can be renewed and you can think rightly about how you as a believer are to address this problem. Now, to answer this question of how, what do we do about it and to show you the two wrong approaches, I want you to turn to Luke's gospel. All right, we're going to go to Luke chapter 5. And as you're turning there, many of you are experiencing the popping of your Christian bubbles, right? We like to create a Christian bubble around ourselves that is easy, but the, unbelieving, the walls of the unbelieving world are closing in, aren't they? And our little bubbles are getting popped. We're getting pressured at work to refer to someone by their preferred pronouns, not who, they, who God made them to be, but what they prefer, what they feel they should be. We have family members who are planning on getting married to someone of the same sex and inviting us to attend their weddings. What do we do as believers? There are less and less places for us to hide, right? And that's probably a good thing, because should we have been hiding in the first place? No. In, in Luke 5, we're going to see our Lord walk a very straight and a, an extremely narrow path. And we are called to follow him on that path until we see him face to face. And the thing about narrow paths is that there are how many sides to fall off of? There's two sides, right? If you're not careful, there's two sides to fall off of. And if we're not careful to follow right behind our Lord, we're going to fall off one side or we're going to fall off the other one. So let's look at how our Lord navigates this, this type of situation that we are finding ourselves in. So Luke chapter 5, I'm just going to read verses 27 to 32. After that, he, Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people. The other Gospels say tax collectors and sinners were there. These are the unsavory people. These are the, the God-denying uh, traitors of Israel who are not living under Mosaic law. They are doing their own thing. Levi invites these people to this party he's having for Jesus. It says in verse 29 that they all were reclining at the, t at the table with them, Levi and, and Jesus. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? So you, there's Jesus and his disciples at this party that Levi is throwing for him, and all these other these tax collectors and sinners are, are eating, and Jesus and his disciples are there eating with them. Verse 31, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want us to observe what Jesus did not do in this account. The first thing Jesus did not do was he did not show disgust for these people, right? He did not show disgust. He did not recoil from them. He did not hold himself aloof from them. And notice the evangelistic heart of Levi. He throws a party for Jesus, and he invites all of his friends who need this Jesus to this party, right? And Jesus didn't say, Levi, wait, who did you invite to this party? I'm sorry, I can't go. I can't be seen with those people. I'm not going to be in the same room with them. No, Jesus is sitting at the same table with these people. He's eating and drinking with them. And earlier, he had called one of them to be his disciple and to follow after him. What can we learn from this example of our Lord? Well, picture yourself in this situation. You are walking down the street, and you see a man who is clearly a man, despite his efforts to present himself as a woman. Or you see a woman thinking she is a man walking toward you. Don't cross the street. Don't treat that person like a leper. Don't shake your head and say gross under your breath. Don't go home and gossip about the person. Say, honey, you can't believe what I saw today. Look that person in the eye and smile and ask him how he's doing. Shake her hand. If you happen to have the opportunity to get to know that person, don't be afraid to have a cup of coffee with him or to invite her over for dinner. Love him and seek opportunities to share the gospel with him. Invite her to church. Yeah, invite her to church. You might be the only person in their life who would love them enough to tell them the truth about how Jesus died and rose again to save sinners. You might be the only true friend that person has. You might be their only tie to reality. We need to remember that we're not more holy than Jesus. If he did not see a problem with befriending sinners and loving them and spending time with them, then you and I should not either. Because think about it, if Jesus never rubbed shoulders with rebels, where would you and I be? Right? Do we not deserve hell just like the transgender person? And if he never stooped down to say, follow me, we would still be headed to hell with everybody else. We'd still be dead in our sins. Don't forget what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. Let me read that to you. You don't, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Paul said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he goes on, verse 10, I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He's talking about don't associate with the immoral people who are in the church, members of the church who profess to know Christ but are completely denying that profession by how they're living and who are resisting all calls from that church to repent. He's saying, don't, 
don't associate with those immoral people. He wasn't talking about the immoral people outside. Now, certainly, this, this takes wisdom, right? This takes wisdom, showing love to the unrepenting sinner. Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 1, that when you seek to rescue someone from their sins, you need to be looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, right? If you were saved out of the LGBT community and you still struggle with the temptation to go back, it's probably unwise to invite them over for dinner knowing that they will be calling you back to that place, right? So you have to exercise wisdom. But we must not show disgust. We must love those people. The second wrong approach that we observe Jesus not doing here in Luke 5 is giving affirmation of their sin, right? Jesus in this party is not affirming the sinful choices of those he's eating and drinking with. He's not participating in their sins and he's not encouraging them in their sins, right? What is he doing? According to verse 32, what was his approach with these individuals? What was he calling them to? Repentance. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them away from their life of sin. Jesus called sin, sin. And he called those he ate and drank with to turn away from their sin. If you have a friend or a family member who is enslaved to the sin of of homosexuality or transgenderism or one of the other initials in their acronym, the most unloving thing you could do to that person is to affirm him or her in their sinful choices. And that's that's a, con a controversial statement, but should it be all that controversial? I mean, we don't, we don't struggle with that when it comes to other sins, right? If somebody murders someone, we don't go up and throw our arm around their shoulder and say, I'm proud of you for being true to who you are. We don't do that. If someone shoplifts, we don't pat them on the back and say, wow, that's brave of you to express who you are, who you feel yourself to be. So why do we do it with these sins? Well, we do it for these sins because these are the sins that our culture is elevating and that our culture is refusing to call sin, and that our culture is pressuring us to join in on and to approve of. Our culture agrees that murder is wrong, so it's easy for us to say murder is wrong. But when our culture says this sin is right and good and you're a weirdo if you call it sin, it's harder to, to say what the Bible says about it. We're afraid of becoming outcasts in society. So when you say to the homosexual person, I think you should be able to love whoever you want to love. Or when you say to the transgender person, I think it's really brave that you express yourself that way. Who are you really loving? You're loving yourself. You're protecting yourself. You're letting that person go on destroying him or herself so that you can avoid feeling the pain of rejection. That's not love. Following Jesus' example means that you will never compromise with sin. You will never celebrate sin. When that loved one invites you to her wedding and you know that she's planning on marrying another woman, 
you're going to have to gently, lovingly, but straightforwardly say, a wedding is a celebration. I'm sorry, I can't go. I can't celebrate you destroying yourself. When your boss says that you're going to have to start calling Bruce Brenda, and you're going to have to start referring to him as her or as them, you're going to have to have a conversation with your boss and say, listen, with all due respect, I cannot in good conscience do that. I'm a follower of Christ, and that means I cannot lie. And if I call Bruce Brenda and I refer to him as a her or as a them, I'm lying to him. I'm hurting him. I can't do that. Is there any way that I can respectfully avoid having to address Bruce in that deceitful way? We have to choose Christ above all others, above friends, above family, above co-workers. That's what it means to call him Lord, right? So, we have to walk that straight and narrow path. We must not treat these individuals with disgust because they're made in the image of God just like us. They're headed for hell just like we were before we were saved by Jesus Christ. But we also must not affirm them in their sin. We have to love them enough to tell them the truth about God and about sin and about hell and about salvation in Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking, Josh, you're expecting me to walk a tightrope here. How can I love someone without affirming their sin? How can I keep from compromising with sin without showing disgust to the sinner? And you're right, it does feel like, a t- like, like walking a tightrope. And I've fallen off of that tightrope myself. I remember I was at Cranberry Lake. Bear with me, I know I'm going long, but it's only 11.45. I was at Cranberry Lake, and I wasn't really faithfully following the Lord. And there was, I was in a cabin with someone. This was for school, for college. And a group of them were over on the other side of the cabin talking, and they, they called over to me to get my opinion on something. They said, Josh, what do you think about homosexuality and, and all of that? And I said, I think it's disgusting. And ever since then, I have been ashamed that I passed up such a, a softball underhand throw opportunity to show the love of Christ and and declare the truth about Christ to them in love. I did nothing for them. I, I used to think, oh, I stood up for the Lord. No, I didn't. I pushed them away from him. So you're right. It does feel like walking a tightrope. And you will have missteps where you slide off one side or the other. But you, have you ever seen a tightrope walker? Do you you ever observe what they do as they're walking that tightrope? Well, there's three, three things they do, and I'm closing with this. There's three things they do. They look straight ahead at their destination, don't they? They're not looking all around, and they definitely aren't looking down. They're looking to where they're going, right? And so we need to look where? At Jesus Christ, right? following his example. We need to look at him, right? Secondly, 
when they start to get off balance, what do they do? They kind of bend their knees, right? They get low. They lower their center of gravity closer to the wire because it's harder to fall over when you have a low center of gravity. Well, in the same way, you and I need to stay low, right? By being humble and being constant in prayer. Because if you're standing tall, proud, you're going to fall off either on one side or the other. You're either going to do to your pride affirm sin because you want to be applauded by the world, which is pride, or you're going to be a Pharisee and say, that's disgusting. I think I'm way better than you. You need to be humble. Third, a tightroper will often use a counterweight in order to support their ability to keep their balance, right? And you and I also need help in balancing, which is where church, our gathering together, is so important. Because when I face this situation at work and I don't know how to navigate it, I have all of these counselors that I can talk to and say, can you show me from the scriptures what I, principles that would help me navigate this situation? And when you do fall off, you repent. First, you repent before the Lord, asking his forgiveness for affirming what he hates and despising what he loves. And you ask forgiveness of that person that you selfishly affirmed in their sin. Or you ask their forgiveness for so unlovingly showing disgust and contempt for them. And then you get back up on the line trusting the Holy Spirit to guide you through his word and empower you to walk that line. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your word is so clear. Lord, it addresses either explicitly or in principle everything that we come across in this world. Lord, it really is our roadmap for how to honor you and how to live for you. Lord, help us to, to give heed to what your word says. And Lord, I pray for anybody uh, who may be here who identifies as an L or a G or a, a B or a T or, or any of the others, or who doesn't and is struggling with some other kind of sin, but they have not yet seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. I pray that you would shine the light of the gospel into their hearts, that they would see that Jesus lived a righteous life in the place of his people, and he died on the cross paying for all the sins of his people, including sins of homosexuality and transgenderism and murder and lying and any other sin. He paid for all of that, and then he rose from the dead, showing that you accepted his sacrifice. Help them to see that there is a Savior for them, and that in Jesus, they will find contentment because he is enough for them. Even the person who's not content with what he looks like or what his gender is, if he comes to Christ, he will be content because he will be content in Jesus. He will be satisfied in Jesus and he will be willing to accept the plan that Jesus has for him or her. So may you draw them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.